Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Miguel Delaney of The Independent and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. I've been to see Patrick Vieira at Crystal Palace. He, of course, is one of the pivotal players of the Premier League era. Stephen Gerrard, another player of similar stature, has found his legacy as a player irrelevant in management. His sacking by Aston Villa has led to the return of Unai Emery to English football. Here's a world-class coach joining a club with great traditions and ambitions. Is that a good move for both, Mix? Yes, for Emery, certainly he's had something he wants to correct in English football for some time after what happened at Arsenal. After what he'd play is maybe a qualified failure of a first season and then things just dissipated in the second. That, I suppose, also frames whether it's a good one for Villa. I mean, first of all, Villa are getting a good manager with a strong record in terms of the scope of club Villa are right now. And given his best successes have been at Villarreal, Sevilla, in fact, Sevilla are probably one of the closest analogues to Villa, given they've had historical success, not a European Cup as recently as 1982, but a lot of European silverware. So I think he'll do a good job of Villa, but Villa fans might have to get used to some games that are not all that enjoyable. <laughs> I don't want to say I'm an Emery sceptic because I respect him a lot and, you, and and his record is there to see. I don't think he's a top-class coach. I think his football is a little bit behind the times. But he's a good enough tactician to make it effective. It's probably why his cup record is better than his league record, especially in recent times. But, I mean, for where Villa are right now... Okay, the reports about going for Pochettino and Tuchel that was always that was always ambitious, but it's not about getting one of the top bracket of coaches in. It's about getting a better coach and an effective coach and and someone who I suppose to, to reiterate for all my my, my contextualising still a good manager. Yeah, I suppose you, know, you use the phrase manager there, but we are looking here at a coach, aren't we, Rich? And did the Steven Gerrard sacking? Is that a sort of signal that the era of the manager is in irreversible decline? Because you know, by common consent, 
most of the the coaching at Villa was done by Mick Beale before he left QPR and people could see the joins. So that combination of teaching and people skills is now demanded, isn't it, in the modern game? A hundred percent. And, you know, just just touching on on Mick Beale and seeing how well QPR are doing this season, I mean, you can only connect the dots there. But, you know, you look at at players, look at modern players, they, they like, as you mentioned, they like learning, they like getting that information, having that contact time on the training pitch and having that manager or head coach doing that role on a day-to-day basis only brings that synergy and brings the, you know, the players closer, closer to the squad. I mean, of course, Gerard came in and he had his gravitas and, uh, you know, it was a big name and it probably had a, well, it did, it had a, a good galvanising effect at the beginning. But um, as you say, if you're struggling to get your ideas across, leave Villa in a situation now where they're in a relegation fight now. So, yeah, it's, it's all about kind of building those relationships and, and cultivating that on the training pitch. And of course, we've seen instances where you know, head coaches have become managers, you know, like sort of Quattatino, likes of Arteta, doing more in the whole holistic approach. But, you know, they're very much on the training field as well, day to day, and getting their ideas across on, on, on a daily basis. And I think it makes a, it makes a huge difference now. As I say, the way players consume information, the way they, they take things on board and having that relationship with the managers is really key. So combining the two I think we're going to see much more of that trend than the kind of overseeing overarching manager which we're probably used to it's probably going to be a thing of the past now True what about the ownership at Villa Migs they're members of the billionaires boys club if you like plenty of money to spend the expectation is that Emery will be well supported in the January transfer window yet you know, it's interesting that the Villa play at, at Newcastle on Saturday. Is that just another reminder that for all the wealth of Villa's ownership, it's still going to be secondary to state sponsorship? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, that's one context for it. There's also, of course, the fact that uh, Newcastle's original choice was Emery. He turned them down. Whereas, I mean, there has been some debate over whether it's been flipped here, although Emery himself said that he made his decision on Friday, which would indicate Villa went to him much earlier, say, than Newcastle went for Howe in the process. I must say, actually, in that regard, it's interesting that it throws it up, given Emery turned Newcastle down. I'd probably find Howe's football more appealing and progressive than Emery's. That's that's a bigger discussion, though, or a different discussion, should I say. But yeah, absolutely. The fact, I mean, this goes back to what Klopp was saying two weeks ago. The fact Newcastle have this ownership now doesn't just make it much harder for clubs like Villa. It makes it much harder for everyone but two other clubs in the game, in the, in the medium to long term. Not right now because of FFP controls and all that. But ultimately, when you've got a state backing, these clubs just can't go bust in that way. It's, it's, it's a whole different level to what we're talking about. And also, some of that, some of that I think, points into this debate about whether, A, how Villa is run, and B, what sort of manager that, or what sort of coach Emery will be. Because... Even if he was one of their first choices or they never had a first choice in that sense, some of the names that they went for, from from Amarim to Pochettino to Tuchel to Emery, they're all very different profiles of manager. Now, usually in these situations, or in the modern game, when clubs are essentially run well, they have a model they've identified, an idea they've articulated, or an ideology that drives the club and can, of course, be reshaped as and when, and with all decisions and appointments fitting into that. And I think that's when managers become more head coaches in this way. Villa, as as can be illustrated by the recruitment process, don't have that. 
one of the arguments now might be they just adapt what they've got to Emery's approach, which will be a more old-fashioned approach. We'll see. We'll see what happens, but it might make Emery a bit more of a manager in that regard. And it's yeah, it's 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 one of the interesting things, I suppose, about what's going to happen next with the club and and their their huge ambition. Yeah, what do you make of the the job that Eddie Howe has done, Rich? You know, it does seem that in many quarters he's still being damned with faint praise. I think he's done a he's done a good job. I mean, of course, he's he's been backed well for all the points that that, that Migs have spoken about. But to give him his his due, I mean, he has made the players who were there before him much better. You know, we've seen the likes of Amaron. You know, six goals this season. He's playing very well. Joel Linton is a completely different player to what he was under under Steve Bruce. And that kind of player, seeing that improvement in in those players, I mean, Eddie Howe does deserve. The credit for that and I have been impressed with the way that you know the way he sets up his side and you know against Spurs he, he was he was a bit pragmatic you know there was a lot of uh wouldn't call it long ball say long passes to be fair but it, it exposed Spurs' high line and say they, they they got the win and you know to, to go to Spurs and, and, and win is a great result to go to Old Trafford and, and get a nil-nil draw is, is fantastic and it probably should have won that game barring you know strange refereeing decisions but He's done. He's done a good job so far. It's interesting to see how far he will take them. They're sitting high in the table right now, and it's just interesting to see if they can maintain that. But they say the fact that he has he has made the existing players there better. That could only, you know, give Howard's due and his credit there. Mm, yeah, Brendan Rogers on here last week made the point that you know nothing can beat the importance of putting in the work on the training ground. Now he has to protect Leicester's newfound optimism against Manchester City at the weekend. Looking at City, Migs, safely qualified for the Champions League last 16. What do you make of Guardiola's, you know, pretty obvious praise of Jude Bellingham and his special mentality? (laughs) Is this just an acceleration of the courtship process? Uh, Yes. I mean, it's one of the kind of the biggest questions. Okay, it probably won't get to Haaland levels. Maybe not too far behind, given that Bellingham's obvious talent. And it's interesting that like I did a piece in this a few weeks ago where I was writing about how in England it had been seen that United and Liverpool had been the most active, but in Germany there was a caution. It was uh, it was Real Madrid, but all of that was always with the caveat that Manchester City were watching, and it is difficult not to. And again, this comes back to what we're saying about um, you know in, in terms of the ownership, and this is the new the new challenge for everyone else, and the new problem for everyone else is that they can just go to higher levels. And there is that feeling now that no matter what these clubs do, and, and especially when you have Pep Guardiola so praising someone, and, and in all likelihood, probably being able to offer Bellingham a direct place in that City team, that the feeling is he may just end up going there. Again, a lot of time until the summer, as well as a World Cup. But uh, yeah, I think you're, you're completely right, Mike. I think it feels like things are lining up. Yeah, well, he's certainly... Adding goals to his game, I think it was eighteen, eighteen now this season. You know, if we return to that theme of working on the training ground, Rich, has Guardiola, do you feel, made Erling Haaland a better player? Now I know he protected him at half time last night, some sort of fever. We'll see how that plays out in the next couple of days. But if he has made him a better player, how? Well, talking about. Protecting him is, is interesting, actually. Um, my colleague Paul Ballas did a really interesting piece on how City's medical department really 
curated Haaland's return or uh, introduction to the to the city fold when he, when he joined the club and it, they didn't just throw him in you know they really they really it was a really careful process from you know getting them in as soon as the season finished sending them out to Spain to work with some doctors out there and, and a really kind of curated process at the beginning of pre-season and we've seen now he's played 16 games or 15 and a half because he went off yesterday which is just over half the games that he played last season which was obviously injury injury hit as we know so the fact that he's and the, you know him and you know, Guardiola and the City medical department have have got Haaland seemingly fit, firing on a consistent basis is key because you know if you're fit, you're available. That's your biggest attribute. When it comes to the football inside, I, I definitely say his hold-up play has definitely improved. I mean, there were questions there before he joined, you know, about his first touch and, and things like that. But I've really seen improvement in that. I've been really impressed with his movement as well because we know City like to kind of get in that kind of right right flanking behind and, and rip those crosses and didn't really do it too much last season with, with no striker but with the striker there now we know Harlan's got the instinct of knowing where to be but his movement to get away from defenders to then get into that space where he knows the ball's going to be it's is, is been fascinating to watch at, at close quarters that and um, of, of course you know his his strength and you know the, the, the runs he makes in behind obviously again the big uh, kind of criticism, I guess, of Bundesliga that, you know, a lot of high lines and players getting in behind all the time. But the fact he's been able to time those runs in the Premier League with, a, you know, different array of, of high lines, deep lines, deep blocks, whatever, that has been really impressive to see. And the fact he's scoring all kinds of goals, as you say, can only really give credit to, to Guardiola and, 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 of course, his teammates as well for putting the ball on the plate for him. So it's frightening, really, as you say, he's only 22. He's only going to get better, which is, I think, it's just scary for everyone else, really. But yeah, he's he's done fantastically so far, as we all know. Mm. In what I suppose we must call the real world of football, it's pretty cyclical, isn't it? Now, you look at Wolves, if you could please, Megs, and especially their decision to keep Steve Davis in charge until after the World Cup. There is a sense of a club in stasis, if not in crisis. You know, let's talk about money worries for the owners, reducing influence of uh, Jorge Mendes... What do you make of what's going on there? Well, it's yeah, it's very interesting from the perspective in that, I mean, for the last, what, half decade, Wolves had quite transfer clout due to bring in so many Mendes players. And so also so many Mendes, well, actually, no, not so, to, say, to say so many Mendes managers is wrong because uh, I don't think Nuno is officially one of his clients. And obviously since then, it's only been Bruno Lage. But it has been interesting that they, that they haven't, but they've struggled really for a placement since. It does point to maybe a shift in direction. And also, I mean, I suppose this thing, I mean, th- things in football are cyclical in that regard. But also, I mean, to come back to, I suppose, what is, it's not just framing this podcast, but it does frame a lot of them, I suppose. It's, cycles are to some degree dependent on the economic infrastructure of the sport. And if, if, if from that perspective, for clubs like, well, it's harder to come round you would have thought they would have been hard-fastened into a kind of a mid-tier Premier League place. But as soon as there are any sort of issues, the Premier League, I think especially from, what, position eight down, you'd say, in terms of financial wealth, it's extremely volatile. And any sort of slip... I mean, you could almost... I was thinking this the other day when I was, when I was watching Leeds. If it wasn't for kind of the, the super money, the, the way the bottom 12 of the Premier League is so competitive... And so there's so much chaos down there. 
it's almost like the first division in the 1970s or up until the mid 70s or a kind of a super championship in terms of how how quickly things can shift and and wolves without having that insulation of the quality they had with that starting to dissipate when i have to try and bring in diego costa to score goals a player who was great but is no longer in the prime of his career then suddenly they're very much uh, suffering the effects of that yeah you mentioned you know the scramble of the top 12 or sorry the bottom 12 as a principle do you think the you know principle of giving caretaker managers a go you look at gary o'neill who's probably making a decent case for himself at Bournemouth. But is that strategy, does it work as a strategy? You've seen it work in the past. There have been some instances where it has worked. I mean, Roberto Di Matteo is probably the the biggest one, although that was a decade ago. Um, I'm trying to think. I, mean, I think Gary Monk at Swansea did a good job. I think he, you know, he took Swansea to 7 for 8 before getting sacked the following year. But So there are instances where it does work, but... I think what the the dynamic changes, doesn't it, from being a caretaker and having not as much pressure on you, you know, you previously were in a you know, part of the backroom staff, you were a coach before and you probably had a different relationship with the players. Then changing that and becoming a manager or the head coach and where the buck stops with you and that relationship does change. There's more pressure, there's more scrutiny on you and we have seen that take us toll on a number of caretaker managers. So, I mean, as as a strategy... I mean, often it kind of boils down to the fact that there maybe hasn't been a strategy and maybe the caretaker manager has done better than expected. So they do throw him in there to, you know, maybe to save money or trying to build on continuity. So it'll be interesting in the sense of, as you say, Wolves, I mean, obviously he's clearly not working there, but on the flip side of Bournemouth and Gary Neal's doing a great job. But again, if he was to be given that that permanent role, how would he cope with the the change in dynamic there with the players, the scrutiny on him and, and, and things like that as well? It's, it's, it's fascinating to see, but it's, it's that culture shift and that dynamic shift which, which does change the whole aspect within the club. Mm, yeah, talking of culture shifts, you know, other clubs are taking that route of investment in youth, targeted recruitment. You know, Two of those clubs are playing on uh, Saturday, Palace at home to Southampton. Now, by their own admission, Palace have not always taken advantage of the rich, yet pretty raw talent on their doorstep. Now, under Patrick Vieira, they're taking steps to redress the balance. So, Patrick, thanks for joining us. No, thank you. South London, it seems to me, has many comparisons with track out of Paris, Banlieue, in which you grew up, high percentage of immigrants, produced a certain type of person, but also a certain type of footballer. Can you draw some comparisons between where you're working now and the footballers you work with and the way you grew up? I think, yeah, I think it is a good comparison. I think when you look at South London, it reminds me a lot of Dreux, where I grew up, Trap but the suburb of Paris as well, because in those areas, you have a lot of immigrants, France colonized, a lot of um, African country. When you go to those places, you have a lot of people from Senegal, Ivory Coast, Mali, French-speaking African countries. And I think, yeah, this is a good comparison because of the number of immigrants that you have on those places. And... Uh, you have 
a lot of players who came from those parts of France. You know, when you look at footballers in general, to succeed with the difficulties to be at a higher level because, you know, you need to have a strong character, personality, and you build your character and your personality by growing up on those places because it's challenging, it's really difficult, and this is where you build yourself as a person. And I think this is one of the reasons why you have a lot of players coming from that side of places because of of the toughness that you have on those places who build your character. In addition to character, there's a certain type of development of talent, isn't there? So if you look at South London and, and the areas in which you grow up, a lot of cage football, people express themselves through football. Do you see that in some of the players that you have here at Palace? Yeah, I don't know if it's, a, it's the cage football, but you know, when you grow up on those places, you play football with the older kids. You play with no referees. You play uh, the street football. That means if you want to play, you have to be tough. If you want to play, you have to create you, your personality and to, to accept those difficulties. And you growing up on those kind of area where with not you knowing or being aware, you, you built your personality. And when you go to a football club and you are used to competing and you are used to deal with difficulties, and I think that allowed you to come through to those difficulties. And that is one of the reasons as well. You have a lot of players coming from those difficult areas, I would say. Do you talk to your players about that? Because people like you know, Eze or Elise, people like that will, they come from an area that probably they can identify with you in the way that you grew up. We talk about my experiences as a footballer and we talk about the difficulties that or the challenges that we had and we compare them. And yes, there is some similarity, the way that I grew up and the way they are growing up. But we know where we came from. You understand what I mean? Mm. So we talk about it and we have responsibility to guide some of the young people coming from those areas to find their way. You know, because we came from difficult, from those places and we know how that can be challenging and be where we are today. We have that responsibility to, to help and to give opportunities to those young players. Because mm. those young players, they are almost a product of a wider society. It's not, some would come from single parent families, but there, there seems to be always an individual, a kindly individual who helps along the way, maybe taking them to matches or buying them some boots, you had uh, Jacques Otef, right. who, who helped you travel three hours to your first club. Again, when people look at football, they don't really appreciate what goes into the creation of a footballer. It's not just talent, it's about the whole culture around him. The talent will just take you to a level. And then what will make you going to the top or what will make you full that potential is the support that you have around you. And that support can come from the family. But in my case, growing up with a single parent, with my mom, 
it was really difficult to have that kind of support going to training or to pick me up. Or, But I had a person who his son was playing in the team and he was the one who picking me up from home or picking me up after school, They're driving me to training and taking me back at home. So those persons are as important as the parents, I would say, because they support you to feel that potential that they saw on you. So in every players around, there's a really nice story of support from people sometime outside of the family area to talk about. And of course, we need that kind of support because growing up of, around those places, you don't have the full support or you don't have the support from like the kids who grew up in London or in Paris in the city center. Sure. There's been a big investment in the academy at this club. How critical is that for the club's future long term? I think for our football club, the academy, it's the, we say the colon vertebral of the football club because of, you know, that is an important part of financial aspect of the game because we as a football club don't have the money to go in the market and buy 10, 15 players, 50, 60 million. Mm. So we have to produce our own talent. We have to produce our own players. And to do that, we need a facility that allowed players to to grow and to believe in the football club and, and to work hard, to work well. We need the coaches to have a facility where they can maximize the knowledge of the game. And I think the chairman built one of the best facilities where you can produce talent. You have all the tools that you need to produce those talents. And now I think he will take hard work from the coaches to produce those talents. You were captain at uh, Caen at 19. Yeah. Have you always been comfortable with the responsibility of leadership, both as a player and obviously now as a coach and manager? Yeah, I think so. I think when I look at my... <laughs> My career, I always had responsibilities at the early age. I always had managers who give me those responsibilities because they felt that I had the shoulder to handle it. And that make me grow personally as a human being, as a person. And that allowed me to express myself as a, as a player and, and to be really demanding on myself. And, other ones as well so the personality I think yeah I had it since uh, since I was a kid yeah in many ways you embodied the Arsene Wenger revolution at Arsenal is there one quality or one piece of philosophy that has stayed with you since then what I love about Arsene was his um, positiveness there wasn't any problem there was solution everything really negative, he will find the best way to turn it into something constructive. And I loved those conversations that we had together. And uh, that is definitely something that is in my mind to build the relationship with the players. This is the tools that I use to 
in the relationship that I want to build with players around me. How important was that two-year sort of transitional relationship you had at Manchester City, where you had the elite development squad, but also you were shadowing areas around the club? Did that give you a really good idea? Yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, that was m- important because when I retired, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So. City really gave me that opportunity to spend time in every department in the football club and find out what I really wanted to do. So I was really privileged at that time because not so many players had that kind of opportunity. So it was a really good two years. I spent a lot of time with, at the time, uh, Brian Marwood was a sportive director and Gary Cook was a CEO. So I spent a lot of time with them and that allowed me to in a way, find myself, find what I wanted to do. And if I'm here today, is of course, those two years allowed me to, to really understand where I can give back my experience. That experience, I'm assuming, has helped you here at Palace because you know, a modern manager needs to understand what a sporting director wants. He needs to manage upwards, maybe towards yeah, the Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's, um, it's a different way to get to where you want to be, meaning like be a manager. You know, there's players who stopped their career and they went straight away to manage first team football and they've been successful. There's the, the ones who, like myself, wanted to be sure this is what I wanted to do. So I went into administration, I would say for two years. I went to the academy for two years. And then I felt like I needed an experience in the first team football but with not so much pressure to really see if this is what I really want to do. And going to New York was a really good experience. And when I was ready to come back in Europe, the opportunity in France and in France really make me understand what is the reality of of football, because you get the sack after two and a half years and it's difficult to understand. And this is the the real world. So I have a, a full pictures about the game and now I, I have the, the tools to understand how it works even if we learning every day like Arsene been telling me I'm in a good place on that side. What do you enjoy about being out on the grass with your players? I think this is the second best things after playing and being on the grass, being with the players, sharing my experience directed players, managing the staff. I love the pressure outside of the game. This is as well football and, and I love that. Your Palace team, I think it's probably fair to say, is a work in progress. How do you see your team evolving? I think we, we did really well last year. I think we competing well against any of the teams. And at the end, when you're looking at the table, I think we were in a, in a good place. And of course, when you do that in the first year, there is a way where people always want more. And it's important for me and the club to manage that kind of expectation because we are growing as a team, as a football club. Sometimes it's difficult to live with the expectation and we have to manage that and not to forget who we are as a football club and 
where we are and where we want to go. So it's important to progress every year, but not get too much exciting with winning one game or not hitting your head against the wall because you lost two games in a row. Mm. When you look at young players, do you see them making the mistakes or making the advances that you made as a player? In other words, you, you learn on the yeah. job, don't you? Yeah, I think, you know, I, of course, went through difficulties during my career and always going to use it to help players to grow, especially those young ones. And I do understand as well when you are a young player and sometimes you can get carried on because you play a good game or you can get carried on because you score goals, you can get carried on because everybody's talking about you. And of course, there is a danger there because young players need to understand that consistency will help them to get to the top, not just one game or one month of competition. And it's about having a conversation with those young players and, and explain to them what football is about because they need to understand the reality of the game mm. because football can be brutal at times. Sure. Do you feel... This World Cup is making this season unique and very disjointed. What challenges does that have for you as a manager? You know, we're here in October, you're playing, what, eight, nine games in... in yeah, it, it is challenging, not just for me. I think it's a challenge for every manager in every league, every club, because you, are, you only play nine games and you will have the World Cup and players mine and not where you want that to be. So it's always remind them that, you know, the priority today is the football club and how do we prepare the week to compete and try to win game in the weekend. And that is the difficulties. But on the other side, players are scared to get injured. Players thinking about, don't want to miss the World Cup. So you can't really blame them because the World Cup is one every four years. And we have players who are lucky to go to the World Cup and they may not going to go to the next one. So there's a balance to find. And that's why it's important for us as a football club to have conversations with the players and to make them understand that, you know, there is some priority and the World Cup will come and you will be there. So today is all about our football club. As a final question, you've won the World Cup. What effect does that have on the winning nation, but also the players who win that trophy? Listen, winning the World Cup for the nation was, I think, fantastic and unbelievable because that was the first one for France and he was in France. So to win the World Cup in France, in front of the nation, it's something that make it unique, you know. Then as a player, this is what you dream since you are eight, nine years old, to be part of the World Cup. But to win it is behind the dream. So there is a proudness, there is a happiness, there is a, the family a part of it as well. You know, there is something that it may never going to happen again. Did you give your medal to your mum? No, the medal I keep it is in the safe 
and um, my grandfather get the shirt of the final. My mom, she she like football, yes. She watching it, yes. But she's watching football because I'm involved in that. But she's not obsessed with with the game. Okay. Well, I'm sure she's proud of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Rich, I was intrigued by that comparison between South London and the suburbs of Paris where he grew up, especially that strength of character that a background like that breeds into not just a player but an individual, a person. What do you feel about you know, the mix between the two of almost some sort of you know, social contribution to a sporting success? Yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting comparison, and and one that it's it's very true. I mean, if you grow up in 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 these kind of areas, you know, of uh, social deprivation, economically deprived, which brings its own issues, you know, violence and economic issues. I mean, it can only it can only harden you if you're in that environment on a day to day basis. You become more streetwise. You become more more attuned to these to certain other aspects of of, of society and things like that. It's only going to make you make you stronger because you have to deal with it. You may have to desensitize your yourself to a lot of things which others may not do, and you know that that creates a certain mindset. And when you're in that situation, things like football does provide its way out. Not not just in a financial sense to go and make a career, but just also to take people away from the day to day vigors and stresses of, of of life. And that's where, as you say, you have the you know the cages there and the, the you know the small football pitches where where players, as we've seen over the years, have, have really developed their skills. So having that kind of social economic backdrop does create a certain type of person, a certain type of player. Because when you are playing on those cages, as as we've seen through multiple documentaries, great series on BT Sport of kind of going into it, you, you can only become a better player on there. You know, small, tight games. It's hard. It's rough. You're going to get kicked. You're going to get. You might get bullied by the older boys, but you can only become a better player being in that environment. As you say, you're working to touch your skills, and that's why we're seeing so many players of a similar ilk coming from these backgrounds. You say you've got a lot of flair very you know confident to showcase showcase their skills but but also having that kind of hardened streetwise mentality that they can face adversity you know it makes you very resilient kind of growing up in those areas having to battle against the odds you know people writing you off from from day one just because of your background where you're from so having to kind of battle against that day to day and come out the other side it, it can only really prepare you for for career in football in terms of having that resilience and, and that hardened streetwise nature I was really struck, Migs, by Patrick's, you know, sensitivity and emotional intelligence. Obviously, his reputation as a player or his record as a player, there's a sense of identification with him from his players. But what I what I was really struck by was his sense of responsibility to them and, and almost, you know, it was up to him to allow them to find a way. Yeah, totally. And I, actually, it's interesting, uh from that perspective as well, especially the discussion we've had about, I suppose, what's going on at Villa and other managers in the Premier League, especially those with kind of big playing careers. But that almost 
It's because it is kind of a quiet approach that you wouldn't necessarily expect, given the perception of Vieira as a, a super commanding midfielder and somebody who just commanded attention as a player from how he played. But by the same token, it's it's a, it's a kind of a such a quiet way of going out about business, but an effective way. And similarly, it's like he, he he's almost quietly evolved into one of the most impressive managers in the Premier League, and without the attention that some of his peers have got. I mean, even even last season, it must be said, there was so much more focus on Gerrard's initial good impact at Villa than there was on Vieira just quietly fashioning something really impressive at Palace. And, and, and as Rich spoke excellently there, it's also, it, it, it feels like he's almost the perfect figure to help the club finally utilise what is a, a considerable... Um, Value. I mean, and it could be actually be argued beyond most clubs. I think it's something we've discussed on the uh, on the podcast before. But isn't isn't South London itself? It's one of the three most fertile football areas in the world, along with Sao Paulo and, and Paris. And so, in, in terms of European football and certainly English football, it it gives Palace such a considerable something so valuable to build on. And it feels like Vieira. It's not just about doing a very good job managing a first eleven or a team or a squad. It's about instilling a kind of a deeper identity into the club as a whole. Yeah, well, you only have to literally look across the road from the training ground to see, you know, a brand new academy at Palace. That's obviously going to be central to the club's future. Is that the way forward, do you think, Rich, for a club of Palace's size? Yeah, I mean, it has to be for, for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly... Having that in investment in there means that they can attract the best players from the area. I mean, as we, which makes it spread. You know, it's South London is is a hotbed of, of talent, but in the past they've they've lost out on those players to to the other academies in and around London. As we know, there there is a lot of competition there, so the opportunity to 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 attract the young players in the area and get them in the academy is is obviously fantastic for them. And then obviously, secondly, you know, producing the players for the first team. You know, as Vieira said in, in 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 the interview, you know they they don't have the the finances to obviously compete with with the top eight of of the Premier League. So they they have to think creatively. Bringing through young players is that solution, and also as well from a business model perspective, because if they can produce these players to then sell on to then reinvest in the club, whether it's the academy or, or other players, it really works within the the, the business model. So. Yeah, investing in youth is, as we know, an academy is a heartbeat of, of any club. So if they can really maximise that potential of the area, then it really helps a club remain sustainable moving forward. Mm. What about Patrick's own personal development, Miguel? You know, here's someone, he acknowledges his debt to Arsene Wenger and, and the positivity of his approach. And he also had... You know, quite an understated, but I would have thought invaluable apprenticeship at Manchester City. He's not just come on the scene, has it? He? And he's thought about being a coach. He hasn't didn't make a snap decision like many do. He took time to make his decision that he wanted to do it. But yes, that that absolutely it. And and again, because sometimes it would be very easy to fall into the perception just because of Vieira's name, he immediately went from player to a coaching career in that way. He didn't, as you say, it comes across, he reflected on it an awful lot. He's a, he's, a, he's a very reflective figure in general, evidently. But also, I suppose, I mean, because 
because it's it's actually it's not just a case here of reflection and just steady evolution. There's also a bit of resilience in that regard as well. Because I think do you remember what, what, he he mentions going to City and the debt he owes them there. But equally, I, I mean, remember he was at New York, and there was almost this kind of and I suppose this does happen a lot. And it's not it's not the fault of the player or necessarily Mark Gensel, but there's almost that feeling that well he'll eventually just move through the club and eventually be first team manager. And that'll be the way it goes. But he didn't. He 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 left. He went to Nice, which is a bit of a risk given these. It's it's not like so many Premier League clubs appoint from France in the way they used to even ten years ago. There has been a shift there, and yet here he is, he's he's worked his way through that, through a fair bit of thought about where he was going, through a few bit, turns to a really solid place in the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. We ended up talking about. You know the World Cup, and you know I, I was very struck by the, the the thought of him giving his his winning shirt to his grandfather. Um, but his mum wasn't that interested in football. They only turned up basically because he used to play. The World Cup obviously is is you know coming very very quickly into our view. Patrick did speak about this whole idea of players now becoming almost scared of being injured and missing the World Cup. I suppose the latest example is the obvious distress of Raphael Varane leaving the field at Chelsea in tears, although I think the subsequent scans are more positive. Is that something that we're going to have to become used to in the next couple of weeks, Rich, do you think, that where players are, they won't pull out of tackles or anything like that, but it's certainly in the back of their mind, isn't it? It has to be. It has to be. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, we are going to see more instances of, of players... Maybe you know missing a World Cup due due to injury be, you know, coming so soon. But the issue with the tournament being held now, as opposed to the end of the season, is that because it's now such a key stage of the season, the teams are building momentum within their season, and the games are coming thick and fast. I mean, there's been October alone. I think some teams have played eight or nine games, which is just crazy. And some teams have got four or five games left before we break up for the World Cup. So. It's going to be a really fascinating and interesting dynamic to see how players approach this. I mean, of course, they'll say and, you know, that to think that they'll give 100% and they probably will, but it will be in the back of their mind. And it was interesting to hear Vieira talking about it, as you say, with his players and saying, look, you know, we, we, we want you at the World Cup. Obviously, it's, it's good for Palace, it's good for clubs to have their players there, but, you know, for now, the club is your priority. You know, ultimately, they, they pay the players' wages and, and things like that. But, it, it will it will be fascinating to see whether players go through the motions or just give that you know maybe sixty seventy percent just to get through games so they don't get injured. But as we know, when you know, if you, you know for example you go into a tackle fifty fifty and you're not going in a hundred percent, you are more liable to get injured, aren't you? So it's 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 a really it's a really tricky tricky dynamic, and you just hope that the players get through squad three and are able to to be at the World Cup. Sure. Manchester United are going to miss Varane, aren't they, Migs? Just in the broader context of what's going on there now, you know, it's become a bit tiresome, to be honest, talking about Cristiano Ronaldo. But I suppose this has enabled Eric Ten Hag to finally establish his authority at the club, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the whole situation is bad for Manchester United, but in a strange way, actually, it could work out well because it's... Not that it's played into the manager's hands, but he's been able to show how deftly he can manage these situations, which is maybe, to be fair, something that didn't didn't ex- people didn't expect from Ten Hag in that way. But ultimately, he's never he's never once backed down to Ronaldo's 
posturing or his positioning of himself. We're going right back to the summer. He's calmly dealt with it. He's allowed a great player that is a club legend, so that inherently requires some diplomacy, the chance to make up for any perceived problems. But then, of course, when a line's been crossed, uh, Ten Hag has acted. And he so it's, he's waited for the right opportunities to assert his discipline or his authority. And they've proven exactly the right opportunity. I think he comes out, comes out of it looking really well. Like just on that as well, I mean, it's interesting that... <laughs> Ronaldo in the World Cup is going to be interesting in itself, given that we know all of this comes in the wider context, not of Manchester United, but of Cristiano Ronaldo's personal hunt for all sorts of international records and and and, and glory, with the World Cup obviously a key part of that. There is a question, I suppose, whether tactically that will give Portugal another issue in the tournament. But, but, but even all of this, though, and everything Rich was talking about there, it's just another folly of where this World Cup is, isn't it? And that, the idea that you could just shoehorn it into the cap. Because really, with a World Cup, you need a much bigger break than just the time for the tournament itself. You need at least a three-week build-up, as much for reasons like this, because that, 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 that's what almost impacts the club season and distorts it more than this, the actual split in the games. It's the fact that inevitably, and of course, players won't be taking a conscious decision to take it easy. That's not the way they work. But on a subconscious level, it can have a big effect, and it's it's sort of inevitable in that way. And then, and then of course, there is the issue of any sort of knock, and not and there's no space for anyone. So suddenly, say in that last weekend of the what is it? It's going to be the eleventh, twelfth of November. There is potential a relatively innocuous injury at that point. Only two to three weeks could basically take someone out of the entire World Cup. Yeah, I think the World Cup will be a huge milestone in so many ways. You know, we began this podcast by talking about a club taking decisive action, Aston Villa, but it does seem that other clubs might wait until the World Cup window before making managerial choices. That brings us to Leeds, Rich, there at Liverpool on Saturday evening. It does seem that Jesse Marsh is in some trouble. Sean Dyche has even been mentioned in dispatches. Is this a club still being stalked by the ghost of Marcello Bielsa. You'd have to say so. I mean, even, you know, seeing and hearing a fan singing Bielsa's name after the last game at Fulham, which I didn't really agree with. I mean, it's something that you kind of have to park and, and let go, really. But to, to hear that, you know, it's, it's still it's still going to be around there. It's, still, it's always still going to be felt by the fans, obviously much loved. And the only way to change that is is by getting results. It's as simple as that. And I thought at the beginning of the season they they were looking decent. You know, obviously they beat Chelsea and they really looked like a side in Jesse Marsh's image. You know, of of course you know the high octane press and things like that. But that that kind of coolness and ruthlessness in key areas of the pitch. And I was really impressed with that performance. But they've gone downhill from there. It's a it's a bit of a mess. Really struggling defensively. The defeat to Fulham was was really poor. But their underlying data isn't actually that bad when it comes to attacking. And they are creating a lot of chances, but without that clinical number nine and without the, you know being being lethal in front of goal, they, they are gonna continue to struggle. So if, if they can change that then of course we'll see their fortunes fortunes change. But if you know, at the at the moment with a misfire and attack and, and, and a leaky defence, it's it's just a formula which only spells one thing, doesn't it? So Obviously, they go to Liverpool the weekend. 
and there's a there's no pressure game for them. You know, last year they they got hammered there, but you know, if Liverpool's form, anything can happen if, if Leeds turn up and play like they can. But yeah, they they really just need to just as you say that defensively they're, they're they're not good at the moment, really poor, really disjointed all over the pitch. Some of the summer silence started off far well and have faded away a bit, so they need to re- re- regain that form. But um. I think I think Jesse Marsh can turn it around. I I, I think he is a, he's a good coach, as you say. We've seen it in 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 kind of bits and spurts, haven't we? So they can get that consistency and and as I say, really improve their fortune in front of goal. Then of course they'll go up the table. But ultimately, if they don't, then you know we, we may see a change of manager during the markup. Mm. With Liverpool in focus, Migs, I just want to end by just reflecting on the spate of you know, quite appalling abuse and out-of-control tribalism, I suppose, that we've we've heard recently at Anfield. What do you think can be done about it? Well, I mean, there should be, as is the case with these sort of things, absolutely zero tolerance for it. There should be more engagement, I would say, from other clubs. I mean, it's one, it's, it's, it is one of those things, like, it feels like for years... I mean, part of football culture, part of it's kind of, there's a dark humour to it where certain songs of a bad taste have almost been just, I suppose, not not quite ignored, but they're, they're kind of almost overlooked. Whereas this goes to such a level that it can no longer be overlooked. And it is a high time, I suppose to a certain degree, chants like that were seen as part of the edge of a rivalry or just trying to wind up an opposition. I don't mean specifically that chance, but I suppose that's maybe what has informed how we've got to a point where all of a sudden it feels like this is being sung an awful lot. And yeah, it, it, it needs stamping out. It needs zero tolerance towards it. And an illustration of... well, Because it's, it's, it's interesting here actually as well. It's amazing how so many times I've seen these stories of where one of the Hillsborough survivors or a family member of someone who, who tragically passed at Hillsborough, and it shouldn't be their responsibility to do this, but I'm just, I suppose I'm just illustrating the power of it, where they have then spoken to someone who's been responsible for these chants. I've seen it on Twitter, and there's been a, there's been essentially an understanding and a realisation, well, okay, needs to stop. Now, education is always the trite answer uh, in ter- when, when people are discussing these issues, but, but certainly, I suppose... It's only, it does require the double-sided thing of there needs to be zero tolerance towards it and also of illustration of why this should be an issue that far from being used to go to rival fans should be a point of understanding for every single fan because as has been so commonly said, given that era, it could have been any stadium. Yeah, I was really struck by a, a, a brilliantly poignant cartoon series by David Squires in The Guardian, I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday, which did make that point, you know, it could have been your fan base, it could have been you. This is a, we're dealing with just a basic issue of, of humanity and empathy here, aren't we, Rich? Yeah, and um, I think sadly it's probably, if you look at society in a way, kind of seeing how, I guess, a kind of lack of respect is kind of seeping back in to the mainstream of society it probably you know seeps into into the football sphere as well you know as as, as you know as Mick said like when you go to football and you know 
taking the mickey out of fans and having that dark humour is you say it helps to kind of the atmosphere in the stadium fans going to each other but there's always been that kind of acceptance that there's a line and you don't cross it as you say these things are kind of creeping back in and I do think it is kind of symptomatic of where society is at at the moment in terms of that kind of lack of respect and people just having or not not really fearing the consequences of it all so yeah as you say there has to be a zero tolerance approach and, and much harsher punishments for, for these things and you know there has to be that kind of engagement from all parties really you know the authorities the clubs to, to really you know do their best to root it out because as you say you can sing songs at a football match but you know where the line is you don't have to go to that level tribalism or not it's just basic respect and I think that has really been you know it's, it's gone or is going from especially in, in, in public life at the moment and it's where we are now which is it's a shame you know you shouldn't have to it's sad that we're kind of talking about this on a regular basis now you know it's not just odd comments it's, it's happening on a regular basis and yeah as, as Mick said and everyone agrees you know, it's just it's got to stop yeah well one of the major problems it seems to me is the way that such disgusting behaviour is being normalised in football you know it's a bit like racial abuse to an extent you know that seems to be a weekly event these days now everyone registers their concerns nothing's done I'd punish the abusers at source close entire sections of grounds deny clubs with offending supporters their away ticket allocation you know sure that punishes the innocent but drastic action is required otherwise football will never be a game for all and it also will never then be a platform on which young players from disadvantaged backgrounds can make a life. Thanks to Patrick Vieira for his time and of course thanks to Miguel and Richard for their insight. Thanks also to you for your feedback. It's much appreciated. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 